Well, I want to start off this morning's message with a couple of uh, fun facts about Christmas, and I need your help and participation in it. It never ceases to amaze me the great lengths to which we'll go to celebrate Christmas. The time, the money, the effort. And so let me ask you uh, this morning, how many of you are traveling this Christmas holiday? How many? Not that many. Not that many in the first service either. About 100 million Americans will be traveling this holiday. Do you realize that? 100 million people. And despite what you're going to see on the news about overcrowded and busy airports or train stations, one interesting stat about Christmas is that about 91% of Americans travel by car during Christmas. About 5 to 6% by airport or by airplane, and 2 to 3% bus, trains, ships, other means. The average distance that Americans will travel to go see their family and their friends is about 275 miles, which is a fair distance, but still doable in a day's drive. And about 9 in 10 Americans say that they'll celebrate Christmas year, 92% of people say they'll celebrate Christmas, and 96% of Christians. I have no idea what the other 4% of Christians do. If they're not celebrating Christmas this type of year, or this time of year. And that's not really a surprise that the percentages are very high, but what is much more surprising is that the big majority of non-Christians in the country also celebrate Christmas. 81% of people in the United States say that they'll celebrate Christmas, who are non-Christian, that includes 87% of those with no religious affiliation at all. The nuns, we call them. More surprising than that, though, 76% of Asian American Buddhists celebrate Christmas. 73% of American Hindus celebrate Christmas. And 32% of Jews in the United States (laughs) who don't believe anything about Jesus, or if they do, it's not in good light. They would never want to really celebrate his birth as such. But 32% of them celebrate Christmas as well. Overall in America, about 51% of people say that they celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday, and 32% say that they celebrate it as a cultural holiday. How many of you have a real Christmas tree? The rest of you, I'm assuming, have fake trees. Did you know that 26.3 million real Christmas trees were sold in 2014? 26 million trees were sold in the celebration of Christmas. The average person will spend about $805 on gifts this Christmas season. And that means that the U.S. retail sales will surpass the GDP of 181 other countries just through the Christmas season. And here's maybe the most fun fact of them all. How many of you like candy canes? Did you know that yearly in the United States, 1.76 billion candy canes are produced? That's enough for five candy canes for every person in the country. And since I maybe will have one, one of you can have my other four. <laughs> you want them? Okay, I'll get, I'll get them for you. Anna Shivak. 
we put a lot of effort. We put a lot of time. We put a lot of money into the celebration of this holiday. And this morning as we start our new short Christmas series that we're calling Christmas Joy, we start off and we say, hey, it is snowing outside. We are now entering the middle of December. I love Christmas. I love the festivities that go with Christmas. I love the opportunity to enjoy friends and family, those Christmas events that make you feel good, the wonderful food that comes this time of year. And the way that the holiday feel is almost magical to so many of us. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. And and I think one of the things that the statistics show us is that people will go to great, great lengths to pursue fun, to pursue happiness, and even to pursue joy during the Christmas season. And fun and happiness can be had. But joy... Joy is something that no amount of festivity can bring. Joy is something much more elusive, but much more long-lasting. I wonder if you would consider yourself a joyous person, or if joy would be a defining part of your life. There's a lot of different definitions of joy out there. One of them on the shallow end of the pool is the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, the prospect of possessing something you desire. Maybe a better definition of joy is a state of happiness. Not a feeling of happiness, but an ongoing state of happiness in your life. In between services today, somebody reminded me of a definition of joy as an attitude of the heart that is rooted in the things of God or the word of God. Since the word of God's trustworthy, then the attitude of the heart is consistent as well. You get the point though, right? There's a sense that joy is deeper. Joy is longer lasting than our temporary notions of delight that we so often pursue. And at Christmas, it's so important for us to talk about what gives us true and lasting joy. Joy that goes through the season and well beyond. Not simply the temporary things that make this season feel magical. And that's where we're going to be over the next couple weeks together. And we're going to start in a very well-known passage leading up to Christmas. And that's in Luke chapter 1, verse 39 to 56. So please turn with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. This is the passage of Mary's song. It's often called the Magnificat which means to magnify the Lord, as she exclaims in verse 46. And it teaches us something about joy. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked in the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. A wonderful expression of joy, really multiple expressions of joy. And the first observation that we can make about joy expressed in this passage is through belief in God's promises. Belief in God's promises leads to joy as those promises are fulfilled. And we see this expressed in Elizabeth's words, particularly in verses 42 to 45. But look at verse 45 with me. She says very plainly regarding Mary, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is is she who believed. Belief. Fulfillment. And joy are all intertwined here. And why is belief such an important dynamic of this situation? And what is the object of that belief? Well, the object of the belief is very plainly the person of God himself. And it's important to acknowledge that because in this situation, the things that are happening here are so entirely unbelievable. Think about it. It's unbelievable to many that an angel would appear and speak to a person. That's unbelievable. And yet she believed. It's unbelievable that a woman could be impregnated by the Holy Spirit of God himself. And yet she believed. It's unbelievable that the one that the angel of the Lord would refer to in earlier in chapter 1 as Jesus, the son of the most high God, that the son of the most high God would be born into the world. That's unbelievable. And to compound it, it's really unbelievable that he would be born to a humble Jewish girl like Mary. Belief. (laughs) Belief leads to joy. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate spirituality. We overcomplicate with a number of words and phrases and ideas, and we promote confusion in ourselves and in others. But at its very root, at its very core, Christian spirituality is based on a couple of very simple questions. 
Number one, do you believe in God? And number two, do you believe God with what he says? And then do you follow accordingly? Do you believe in God? And then if so, do you actually believe him? (laughs) That what he says is true. Because simple belief leads to joyous expression when those beliefs are eventually fulfilled. Here, Elizabeth is joyous. Look with me. She's joyous as she believes God and sees the fulfillment of his promises. The baby in her womb is supernaturally joyous, the text says, as it hears the voice of Mary who represents God's fulfillment as she would give birth to the Savior. Mary herself is joyous as she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he is mighty and has done great things for me. And holy, holy is his name. Belief in God's promises leads to joy, great joy, when we see those promises fulfilled. And that's part of the joy of Christmas. There's another observation that we can make regarding joy derived from this passage. And that is something that might not come so intuitively to us. And that is fearing God leads to joy. When you think of fearing God, joy is not often the thing that you associate with it. It seems counterintuitive. And yet, look with me at verse 50. This is the second major section of Mary's song. And she begins this section by saying, and his mercy or God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy is for those who fear him. Now, we all know that there's different types of fear. Here, we're not talking about fear of punishment or fear of danger. We're talking about what's called filial fear. We're talking about a fear that is one of tremendous awe or respect for another person or thing. You might have a figure in your family, a father or a grandfather, one who you stand in a certain amount of reverence before because of the long-lasting character that you've seen unfold over his life, because of his reputation, maybe because of some of the things that he's accomplished. And you look at him and you say, that is a man that I need to take very seriously. You stand in a certain amount of Fear, healthy fear of him. To use a loose example, this past June I was back in Boston teaching uh, some seminary students in a class. And on the weekend, I went down to Cape Cod to go fishing with some of my friends. And as we were out in the open ocean in a relatively small fishing boat, we were moving across some pretty choppy water that was somewhere between 120 to 150 feet deep when looking off the port side of the boat, a whale breached the surface about 20 yards away from us. Now, I don't know if you've ever been up close and personal with a whale, but if you have, it really begins to put some things in perspective. You realize how entirely small you are very quickly. And 
when a whale breaches the surface of the ocean and that whale happens to be larger than your boat, the next move that you make is very intentional. You, you're not afraid per se because whales don't usually attack fishing boats. He's not coming to get you. But you sit there in awe and respect and reverence for this creature who you know is probably not the biggest in the ocean, which means there's bigger under there. <laughs> and if you make a wrong move or if you take him all too casually, there's consequences for your actions. Fearing God is an awe. It's a respect. It's a reverence for him. And this is an apt word for today because so often in our society, in our culture, we tend to take everything very casually. We minimize the divine. We approach him casually in our action or in our speech. I mean, yes, you are called to be in a personal and intimate relationship with this holy God of the heavens. And yes, he is loving and caring for you in your specific circumstances. And yes, he is worthy of awe and reverence because he is very, very, very different than you. The fear of God. Are you a God-fearing person? Psalm 39, 31, 19 says, how great is your goodness you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Psalm 147, 11. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Malachi chapter four, verse two. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Fear of God is the opposite of a casual approach to him. Fear is opposed to flippancy. Fear of God is one that rightly recognizes our own place and rightly recognizes his place in the order of things. And at first glance, when you think about fearing God, this humble type of fear might seem or feel to be oppressive to you. But what I'm telling you is that a fear of God is the exact opposite of oppression. A fear of God actually leads to joy. Follow the logic with me. Mary says in her song, his mercy is for those who fear him. Mercy is given to those who fear God. How is God's mercy expressed? His mercy is expressed primarily through the person and the work of Jesus, the one who is being sung about, the one who's being celebrated at his birth. He comes, he forgives sins, he dies to pay the penalty for them, he conquers sin, death, and the devil, and as he rises again, the mercy of God throughout history for all the nations is expressed chiefly in the coming of this Jesus. And Jesus, as we know, brings ultimate and lasting joy. Mercy is given to those who fear God. Mercy is 
expressed in Jesus. Jesus brings lasting joy, and therefore, fearing God actually brings you joy. So, if that's true, and if it's true, as the psalmist says, that God favors those who fear him, then what does it say for those who don't fear him? He doesn't favor them. And that means I want to be one of the favored ones. I want to be the one that receives joy in this life and has the favor of God. I want to fear him. I hope you do too. Are you a God-fearer? How do you know if you fear God? What does that look like for you practically or daily? This past week I asked a number of our pastors to participate in this little exercise. How do, you, how do you recognize the marks of a person who fears God? And this is, these are some of the things that they said. One of them said, humility. Quick to admit wrongs, eager to repent of sin, self-aware, particularly self-aware of their own weaknesses. Those are marks of somebody who fears God. Somebody else said, instinctively thinks of God and trusts him rather than first becoming fearful of life circumstances. So when things go bad, when your feet are in the fire or up against the fire and you have one of two ways you can turn, do you turn to immediate fear of the circumstances of life or do you immediately turn and trust of God? who sees all and knows all and has you in the middle of that situation. Those are marks of somebody who's a God-fearer. Another one wrote, a mark would be a reverent fear of accepting his sovereignty, as seen in Job 23, actually embracing God's sovereignty in the darkest days of life. Marks of a God-fearer. Another one said, less people-pleasing. Those are... Those are some marks of God-fearers. Because there's an inverse relationship between the fear of God and the fear of man. We aim to please the God that we fear, don't we? So we, as Christians, we walk this tightrope of justification by faith alone. We know that our standing before God, our forgiveness, our relationship with God is primarily and, and solely founded on the fact that he justifies us through the work of Jesus. And yet at the same time, because we fear him, in a healthiest sense, we want to please him. We want to do what he wants us to do. Holiness is a mark of a God-fearer. Hatred of sin is a hallmark of a God-fearer. The desire to testify to the work of Christ, to evangelize the nations, are marks of a God-fearer. And so I ask again, are you a person who fears God? Because fearing God actually leads to joy in your life. We might say the big idea of this, of this section of text is something like this. Believing God gives us joy at Christmas because he's fulfilled his promises in Jesus. Believing God gives us joy because he's fulfilled his promises in Jesus. Some of that's simple belief and some of that is a healthy and robust fear. And there's a third platform that we see here of joy in this text. And that is recognizing the change of status that only God can bring about. 
Recognizing the change of status brings you great joy. There's a great reversal that happens in Mary's song. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time or you've been to church for any number of years, you've heard it. I'm sure you've seen it. This, this passage of the Magnificat is preached on yearly in some churches. And we would be negligent not to recognize this great reversal. In the world, those who have something to offer succeed. Those who don't do not succeed. But in God's spiritual economy, only those who don't have anything to offer actually succeed. That's the reversal. Look at God's actions with me. Look at verse 50 and on. Verse 51, God shows the strength of his arm. He scatters the proud. He brought down the mighty from their thrones. He exalted those of humble estate, conversely. He filled the hungry with good things. He sent away the rich, empty, verse 53. This is not the way that things are supposed to go in the world. And he ties, it seems, spiritual lowliness to lowly position in this life and spiritual pride to a high or wealthy position in this life because when you're wealthy, the temptation for spiritual pride is much higher. And so this is both an encouragement and a warning. Here's the encouragement. If you feel like you have nothing to offer, if you feel that nobody benefits from you, if you are low, if you are unknown, you only have like six Facebook followers, if you have no incredible skills or gifts or talents, But in your humble estate, you turn to God on his terms. He raises up the lowly. And here's the warning. If you are wealthy, if you are successful, if you have a lot to offer to a lot of people, then the warning is to not allow your earthly success and wealth lead you to a place of self-reliance for physical things or spiritual things. And it's more tempting than we realize. When we become good at everything, we become tempted to think that we can do everything, even justify ourselves. But recognize in your success, even though you are rich, In your soul, you are living in poverty. And then turn to God, and he will lift you up. Believing God gives us joy at Christmas because he fulfills his promises in Jesus. Believing God gives us joy. It's almost so simple of a concept, it'd be easy to look past. Believing God gives us joy at Christmas because he fulfills his promise and his promise says, in Jesus. Years ago, a Scotchman arrived in Liverpool, England where he was bound to embark on a journey for New York City. 
And as he was preparing for the journey, he grabbed hold of the last few shillings that he had that made up his total earthly capital. And he decided that he would economize on food during the trip in order to have more money when he landed in New York. And so he went to the local store and he purchased for himself cheese and crackers for the journey across the ocean. But as the voyage progressed, the salt air made him very hungry. And to make matters worse, the dampness in the air made his crackers mushy, but made his cheese very hard. And he was desperate with hunger. To cap the climax, he caught a fragrant whiff of a warm meal that one of the stewards was delivering to another passenger's room. The hungry man made up his mind. He would have one good square meal, even though it might cost him dearly. And he would have less money when he arrived in New York. And so as the steward came back, the man stopped him and he asked him, how much would it cost me to have dinner in the dining room tonight? And the steward said, well, do you have a ticket for the journey or did you sneak on the boat? To which the man produced his ticket and said, no, I purchased a ticket and, and here it is. And the steward told him that all meals were included in the price of the ticket. The poor man could have saved the money that he spent on cheese and crackers that eventually went bad. He could have gone to the dining room every single night and eaten to his fill as much food as he liked every single time. And this is a picture. This is a humble picture of the position that many people who have believed in Jesus Christ find themselves in. Christ is their Savior. And because of that faith, they have what he gives them freely. But they go about their miserable lives in such a way without appropriating any of the blessings that he gives to them. Even more so at Christmas, when we chase all kinds of things to make this season feel magical. How terrible the responsibility of cheese and cracker Christians who show no joy for those looking for the reality of joy in this life and show no joy for those who need it the most, especially at Christmas. Donald Barnhouse says that such Christians cannot show up because they don't have it, even though it was provided for them in Jesus. Romans 8.32 reminds us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him graciously give us, how will he not also with him give us graciously all things? Believing God, simply believing God, gives us joy at Christmas because he's fulfilled his promises in Jesus. And so this is what I want for us as a people. I do not want us to be a people that chase the idea simply of happiness during a season. That think that we can fabricate a magical sense for one month a year and then go back to life as normal. I want each and every one of us to be marked by true abiding joy. 
an attitude of the heart that maybe peaks at Christmas because we recognize the fulfillment of God's promise. And when Christmas ends, joy remains as we go through the life that God has placed before us. Believing God gives us joy. It gives us joy for all of life, especially at Christmas, because he fulfills his promises in Jesus. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we recognize. And that's what we're going to talk about some other facets of in the coming weeks. So in the meantime, let me pray. Let me pray for you and pray for myself that temporary happiness in the magic of the season uh, would be a wonderful reality, but abiding joy would be the reality for our entire lives. Please pray with me. Father, it is hard to have this attitude of the heart when we, so, when we are so bound in a consumeristic culture like ours. God, help us to see and to know the simplicity of belief and fulfillment that produces joy. Help us to recognize the great reversal that though we are poor in spirit, we are rich in heaven. Help us to know, Father, that your abiding word is consistent and never changes. And therefore, if the attitude of the heart is based on your word, then the attitude of our heart can be consistent as well. Through the ups and downs, the ins and outs of seasons of life, joy can remain present. God, I want more of this joy. I want the people of Old North to be marked by this joy. And so we pray that you change our hearts and our minds accordingly for the sake of your glory. Amen.